let them eat cake. You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And now here's your host, Neil White. Welcome to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? I'm Neil White, joined as always by my brother, David White. How are you doing, David? Doing pretty good this week, Neil. And the dog is in the doghouse, literally, not figuratively, so we won't be interrupted hopefully this week. If you're following us on social media, you might have seen our video with the dog, bit of a blooper reel as he interrupted last week's podcast. Hopefully that won't happen again this week, but if it does, it's all good, furry friend. No chance for me to interact with the dog this week? How cruel of you. (laughs) We'll make sure you get a chance to uh, say hi to the dog before we hang up. And if you're not following us on social media, at When Art Thou, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, give us a follow, give us a like. Uh, We do appreciate it, and you won't miss out on any of our fun stuff like the blooper reel. All right, David, I guess we should get to the podcast. The dog is safely away, so let's record a podcast. You ready to go? I'm ready when you are. Oh, brother, when art thou? Neil, it's the night of 15th April, 1916. And Major J.A. Ross of the 24th Battalion Canadian Expeditionary Force is taking a dangerous tour of the Canadian Corps front line near Saint-Éloi, Belgium. With mounting horror, he is slowly realizing that headquarters' belief in where their troops actually are is almost totally wrong. Um, that's not really a good thing for a military force to not know where their troops are. So, 1916, obviously this is World War I we're talking about here, David. Most of us probably have a bit of an understanding of this war from, like, history class, and it was pretty messy, trench warfare, lots of mud, lots of grime. How come they didn't know where their guys were? Well, you hit on some of the crucial factors that helped to cause this catastrophic error. One of them is quite simply the mud. It slowed things down. It made it hard to transport messages to and from the front line. This is mostly pre-radio, so all the messages have to be moving either over a telephone wire, which can get cut by enemy artillery, or else by a messenger physically carrying them. And the slower they are, the easier it is for headquarters to come out of touch. And another factor is the trenches. Because of how this trench warfare is being fought, it's very important not just to understand where your troops are in a sort of general, I think they're over there somewhere kind of way. you got to be really specific because both sides are dropping artillery using indirect fire, which is a new concept where the artillerymen can't just see directly what they're firing at and therefore you need to know where your own troops are or else you might shoot them by accident which you don't want to do yeah that's that's never good so i guess david these factors add up because i feel like we've been fighting wars for a long time by world war one i mean it's the biggest war but it's not the first war You would have thought generals and armies were pretty good at knowing where their troops were. Well, like I say, a lot of things are new. One of them is the armies are bigger. Generals are farther away from most of their troops than they've ever been because you can't just look out 
over a field and see all of your troops assembled in one place. There's too many of them. War is getting bigger in scale with this, the First World War, and that makes it harder to know where your guys are. And another problem is very specific to this battle, the Battle of Saint-Eloi. It's happening in the Ypres salient, uh, the famous salient which the British and Germans fought over for the entire war. And the initial attack was actually carried out by British troops who then got replaced by Canadian troops taking over their positions immediately after the attack ended. But that replacement process added a lot of confusion that would not be typical for an army whether then or now to experience because usually you don't do a replacement like this in the middle of the action without the line having stabilized but they felt they had to do it in this one specific case and that made things more confusing for an inexperienced staff all of the Canadian officers practically all of them are remarkably inexperienced soldiers because Canada's army's been raised so quickly. So there's a lot of factors that add up to this division getting lost. Okay, David, so if I was Major Ross and I'm realizing that we don't exactly know where our troops are, I think my first instinct would be to get the heck out of there so that we don't accidentally get bombed. What is Major Ross's instinct? Well, unfortunately for Major Ross, who probably does share your instinct, the actual commander of the 2nd Canadian Division, which is the division fighting this battle, is General Richard Turner. And General Turner has actually already requested from the British general who's commanding him, General Plumer, permission to retreat because of the confusion-related takeover of these British positions that has been causing so many problems, even though he didn't at that time know that he was not actually, he didn't actually know where his troops were, he still realized that there were problems at the front. But General Plumer wants to hold this terrain. He has lost a lot of guys in the initial British attack that seized this ground, and he doesn't want to just give it up just because these Canadian officers are coming to him and saying, we've got a problem. Well, I guess if he's fought one battle to get this ground, I can kind of see why he'd want to hold it, but sometimes it's good to listen to the guys who are telling you we've got a problem. So... How do they work this out? Well, unfortunately, it's not a very happy story, the Battle of Saint-Eloi. The confusion that's occurred is that the Canadian, the British, when they initially attacked, had tunneled underneath the German lines and then blown a series of explosives to create craters in the German lines to seize the train in the first place. And then they numbered those craters from one to six. And the Canadians' initial reports were that they were holding craters two, three, four, and five. But actually, they were holding the craters that the 
British had initially numbered 6 and 7, plus a couple of smaller craters that were just caused by shells, not by these mines from the British engineers. See, they should have given the craters more inventive names. Numbers, numbers is always confusing to me. Numbers are confusing, and maybe if the British troops there had, during the handover, been more prepared to leave, say, signs on the craters, that might have helped as well. But that's all hindsight. And the confusion here means that the Canadian artillery is not dropping on craters 2, 3, 4, and 5, since they know where those are and believe that that's where their troops are. And the Germans move their troops into those craters, which they still hold, but which are safe from the Canadian artillery, and then taking advantage of the fact that they're safe from the artillery at these positions, they're able to actually drive the Canadians out of the terrain they're supposed to be holding. Over a thousand Canadian soldiers die just in this period where they're pushed out, finally, of craters 6 and 7, consolidating on a line farther back in a clear-cut defeat for the Canadian Corps. So because the Canadians were in the wrong craters, the Germans are have a safe place to hide and are then able to route the Canadians from all of the craters. Exactly. Well, that does sound like a real mess of a situation, David, even for World War One, The Canadians reform a line further back? The Canadians reform. They're able to hold the line that the British had initially attacked from, so it ends up the entire battle, from the perspective of the British commanders, it was now pointless. They attacked in order to seize this terrain and they did but then the canadians lost it all and as you can imagine the british commanders are not happy yeah i can imagine they are not happy to be back right where they started so general plumer the british commander on the ground decides he wants turner fired and one of turner's brigade commanders general ketchin also to be fired and he sends that to both the British and the Canadian governments as his recommendation for the reaction to this battle. Does this message actually get through correctly, unlike his messages about where the troops were? It's a little bit easier to send messages across the Atlantic Ocean on ordinary, safe, underwater telephone cables, which existed at the time, than it was to send messages across the very short distance between where the generals were stationed and the actual front lines, which contained some additional dangers and didn't contain convenient phone lines that remained intact. Kind of ironic that it was easier to talk to someone on the other side of the ocean than in your own front yard, so to speak. That's just how things end up working out when you're talking about the World War I communication systems. In a touching little moment as I was doing the research for this podcast, I was reading about a lot of Canadian troops in St. Eloi, and one of the quotes I found was from a Canadian signals officer who had ended up, he was supposed to be laying telephone wire but every time he tried it got cut by German artillery shrapnel 
So he ended up, his only means of communication was he was sending messenger pigeons, literally messenger pigeons, and then the German artillery got a lucky shot and blew up his pigeon coop, and he didn't even have that. Oh no, not the pigeons. That's how primitive the communications could be. But on the other hand, if you were far enough away from the front line, you could pick up a telephone and dial for North America and then talk directly to anyone you wanted to. Okay, so General Turner gets fired? No, he doesn't. The Canadian government is not happy to hear that General Plumer wants to see a Canadian general fired, but they're especially not happy that he wants to see General Turner fired. And the reason for that is because years ago, when he was just a lieutenant, Richard Turner had won the Victoria Cross fighting in the Boer War at a battle called Lelyfontaine, where he fought with a rearguard action and saved a very large British force that had otherwise been in very serious danger. So he was a hero in Canada and very well known, and the Canadian government did not want to have this well-known hero get fired. Wow, so the British Empire gives and takes away, but Turner is saved by the Canadian government. Yes, but that puts all concerned into a very awkward position. No one ends up in a more awkward position from this than General Alderson, who's commanding the Canadian Corps at this time. He's a British general who was put in charge of the Canadians to give them a more professional commander than would have been available in Canada in 1914. And now that he has signed off on Plumer's recommendation that Turner be fired, the Canadian government isn't happy with him. And so suddenly there's a very intense political battle where... One group wants General Turner fired, and the other group wants General Alderson fired for trying to fire General Turner. David, we have some interesting politics on this podcast all the time with usually the old kings and queens of Europe and their palace intrigues, but it sounds like there's a lot of politicking going on even in World War I in the trenches. Democracy doesn't get rid of politics, it formalizes it. And the Canadian Minister of Defense in 1916 is Sir Sam Hughes, who's sort of crazy. Sort of crazy? He's a little crazy. He was a big supporter of a Canadian, well, initially a Scottish industrialist, Sir Ross, and part of that was he encouraged the Canadian Army to buy the Ross rifle, which they did. But then in the early part of World War I, it turned out that the Ross rifle was terrible. So they wanted to get rid of it. But then Sam Hughes didn't want to admit that he'd made a mistake. So he started calling everybody who complained about the rifle the real problem. And one of the guys who'd complained was Alderson. So there actually was this history between Hughes and Alderson of contention. But the first time around, Alderson was in the right because the Ross rifle was terrible. 
Yes. And this second time around, General Turner maybe wasn't great as an actual general. Certainly he was personally very brave. He'd not didn't win the Victoria Cross for nothing. That was a spectacular battle he fought in the Boer War. And earlier on, when he was a brigade commander at the start of World War One, he'd fought at the Second Battle of Ypres. And famously, he personally, courageously was on the front line when his forces had to retreat and fought with them and got wounded, which is great. But also, his brigade didn't actually perform very well at the Second Battle of Ypres. They rushed into an early attack that went very badly because it was rushed, and then they retreated early before they got the orders to do it, and greatly annoyed his fellow brigade commander on his flank, Arthur Curry, who was not happy to have this retreat just happen and then get told about it afterwards when his flank was open. So Alderson's got his his arguments that he was in the right, but Turner also has his own arguments that he'd asked to be withdrawn earlier in the Battle of St. Eloi and been specifically denied. So blaming everything on him maybe isn't right either. Yes, very complicated as World War One tends to be. So how do things shake out, David? Well, also, slightly before this battle started, the British expeditionary force in France, the British army, almost the entirety of it, got a new commander. Sir John French, who commanded it at the start of World War One, was removed, and Sir Douglas Haig became the new commander of the British army. And as this political battle is blowing up, it lands on his desk to start to determine how the British are going to react to it. And luckily for us, General Haig wrote a diary, which has been published. It was edited a little bit, but it's remarkably frank in his description of what he was doing and why. And what was he doing and why? Well, in his diary, he writes about how, after he'd been told about this, he saw, quote, the danger of a serious feud between Canadians and the British. End quote. And he decided, in the end, that it would be best to avoid it, even if that meant, quote, the retention of a couple of incompetent commanders, end quote. I'm imagining the guys on the front lines, if they had been able to read General Haig's diary, would not have been thrilled to find out that they were intentionally keeping incompetent commanders. He felt it was the best political move he can make at the time. General Haig's diary did not make Canadians happy when it got published in the 1920s after he died. He also later on has a comment about how in some of the later battles in World War I, he deliberately used Canadian and Australian troops because there were fewer political repercussions to casualties among the Dominions than there were if he used British troops for offensives. Right. Another thing that the frontline soldiers certainly wouldn't have been happy to hear. Exactly. But at the same time, commanders very rarely leave us a document where they admit to making calculations like this. But that doesn't mean that senior commanders 
in military and political life don't make decisions based on questions like whether it's worse to lose the support of an important political faction or whether you should be making them happy even if that's not necessarily the right moral or tactical choice right or re whether it's right to keep on incompetent generals to make sure you're playing the politics of the thing right exactly so this leaves Haig with a dilemma he's decided not to fire anybody but he's now got Alderson and Turner both unhappy neither of them may be still able to work together and he's got to find a way to bring the Canadian Corps back to being a combat-ready formation with commanders who can talk to each other. So his first step is to promote Alderson up out of command of the Canadian Corps and back into a position in England where he won't be in combat. Okay, and what does he do with the Canadian generals? And his second step is to take General Turner and promote him to a position in England where he'll be safely out of combat and the front lines and doing administrative work. And then, of course, he just needs to replace these two generals with uh, available alternatives. And does he find good guys or does he have to settle for incompetence again? Actually, the Canadian Corps will be very lucky in the men who turn up at the at this moment when they need to replace such an important portion of their senior staff. Very importantly, the new British general who's placed in charge of the Canadian Corps is Julian Bing, who has already served with Canadians in the Boer War, so he's got some knowledge, some political contacts, but also who's a very good general. And Bing will use this chance to help to promote out some of the local Canadian talent to take over the second division and also to quietly sort of ease out General Ketchin, who's never as dramatically and obviously promoted away from an actual job as Turner or Alderson, but who also will not be commanding significant numbers of frontline troops again during the war. So out of this mess, the Canadians end up getting some good generals. The Canadians end up, in the long run, probably stronger because they've gotten some good commanders, but also because their staff work was terrible. But it was known to be terrible. There was an immediate effort to make the staff do better or send them to the front lines and find people who could do better. And later Canadian battles in the First World War were going to see a much better quality of communications and much more focus on ensuring communications. We're going to see some more courage from Canadian generals when they're standing up over things like asking for a withdrawal because they can't hold a specific patch of territory. Once there's more confidence in the system, that will actually be good for the effectiveness 
of the Canadian Corps. But that doesn't necessarily mean a lot to you if you were a Canadian soldier at Saint-Eloi when those lessons were still being learned. Right. It was a terrible ending for the guys who got stuck in the middle of it the first time around. That's part of almost any form of human activity. You have to learn lessons and that means sometimes you have to try things that are beyond what you're ready to do, even if you fail. The thing about war, of course, is that the consequences for learning your lessons can be far more harsh than anything you're likely to experience in civilian life. And the Canadians learned all these lessons because some lowly Brit in the army forgot to put numbers on the craters. Well, and because General Plumer, who will end up being a successful British general later on in the war, ordered the initial attack, which may or may not have been a great idea, but then during the attack decided his troops had taken too many casualties and he needed to run a replacement of them rapidly using new troops, which is a very unusual military decision and, quite frankly, given how it turned out, not a good one. But the British, too, were learning lessons and men were paying for those lessons being learnt by those commanders. But in this case, it was Canadian troops who were paying to give a British general a chance to learn these lessons and whether or not that was worth it. That was what is happening. And I might just note that in 1917, a year later, General Plumer will attack on almost exactly the same ground with almost exactly very similar strategy, again, using tunnelers to blow up mines below the German lines in order to create craters, in order to let his troops seize them. And that will be the famous Battle of Messines, one of the few significant British victories of 1917. And as one of those little ironies, in that case, it was Canadian tunneling engineers, amongst others, who worked to create those mines that British troops would fight to seize rather than the other way around. Well, thanks for telling us this story, David. Always happy to, Neil. Uh, you want to play a quiz? I could play a quiz. Very simple one this week. Sometimes these are more complicated and I have a hard time explaining them. This one's really easy. All you have to do, David, is guess which famous person was born first. All right. I think I can do that. All right. Our first pairing here, Lyndon B. Johnson, president of the United States, or Ernest Hemingway, famous journalist and novelist. Hmm. Hemingway or Lyndon B. Johnson? So Hemingway gets famous earlier to my mind, but Johnson gets famous for becoming president, which is something one typically does later in life. I'll guess Johnson. No, Ernest Hemingway was born first in 1899. Lyndon B. Johnson was born in 1908. All right, David, our next one, Christopher Columbus, who, of course, discovered America. 
or the Americas, so to speak. <laughs> and Leonardo da Vinci, the famous painter, inventor, Renaissance man. Ah. I would think that Leonardo da Vinci was born first. This one's a tough one, actually. Columbus was born first. Next up, Margaret Thatcher, the Prime Minister of England. Or Elvis, the singer. Huh. You know, I really have no idea. I'll guess Elvis. See, David, what you should do is, like George Constanza, whatever you think, do the opposite. It was actually Margaret Thatcher, 1925 she was born. Elvis was born in 1935, 10 years after Miss Thatcher. All right, David, our next two, uh, Mozart, the famous composer, or Catherine the Great, the queen of Russia. Well, my first instinct says Catherine, so I'll take your advice and say Mozart. You should never take my advice, David. <laughs> Mozart was born. Mozart was born in 1756. Catherine the Great was born first in 1729. One more, David. A chance for you to redeem yourself here. Sun Tzu, the famous Chinese philosopher, or Plato, the famous Greek philosopher, who was born first. I'll guess Sun Tzu. Sun Tzu was born in 545 BC, Plato in 427 BC. So you are right, David. Well, at least you got one right. <laughs> good job. Thanks for playing along with me anyways. Uh, it's always good fun. And thanks for listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? If you want to get us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, you can find us at When Art Thou? If you want to email us, ohbrotherwhenartthou at outlook.com. And our website is ohbrother.ca. Listen to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.